uh, folks are very welcome to the Abbey Theatre. My name is James Hickson, um, and thank you for joining us for this very special Bloomsday talk with writers Dermot Bolger and Ferdia McKenna. Um, and more than that, it's a particular delight to be able to welcome you not just to the Abbey Theatre, but onto the Abbey stage itself. Um, anyone who's been here before will probably recognise that we're not uh, in our usual arrangement and layout here. Um, so just to fill you in so you can take in the speciality of it, um, what we've done is we've taken out the first five or six rows here from the auditorium as it usually is. We've lifted those up and they've migrated over here to where our Abbey stage usually is. So anybody on the seating bank over here is on the Abbey stage as you would usually know it. And then with the gap that we had here, we built it up, we put in a floor and this is now the playing space for Ulysses. So anybody at the tables here um, around us is also on the Abbey stage as well. So congratulations to everybody here this morning. Here. Uh, we're probably setting a record for the most amount of Abbey uh, stage debuts in a, in a morning. It sounds like a Steve Staunton Island team. <laughs> A team of Gary Breen's. Um, so it's a delight um, and a wonderful kind of alignment of the stars, I suppose, that we have this production of, of Ulysses and it falls on Bloomsday. It means that we get to delve a little deeper into, into Ulysses and into Joyce, uh, this book that's often daunting, often dazzling, this love letter to Dublin, this love letter from James to Nora, um, and this love letter to, to all things um, extraordinarily ordinary. It's also, um, it's, it's, it's a real delight and it's, it's a lovely privilege to be able to, to do this on, on Bloomsday as well. Uh, something I've always thought of as a kind of um, alternative uh, national holiday, um, exploring as it does kind of Ireland and, and Irishness. And I was delighted to discover this last night. You know you're a big deal, which of course Bloomsday already is, um, when you inspire your own kind of spin-off events. There's an alternative celebration uh, running later on this evening, which I need to give a shout out to, because I'm sure Joyce would, would appreciate the pun. Um, it's a small cinema festival um, in celebration of an American actor. It's Jeff Goldblum's day. Um, so, <laughs> so I thought that was, that was pretty rock and roll. Um, come here, just before I, I, I pass over to the guys, it might be just worth taking a, a, a moment just to I just mark one or two kind of quick links and connections um, between Joyce and the theatre and between the, the Abbey Theatre particularly. Um, Joyce, a great fan of theatre, of course. Some people will have come across his, his essay on the work of Henrik Ibsen, uh, Drama as Life. Um, he has many connections with, with, with production performances and, and people involved with the early Abbey. Most notoriously, and this of course is, is uh, commemorated in Ulysses itself, um, when the Fay brothers, uh, two brothers associated with the early founding of the Abbey, um, have to eject is probably the most polite way to put it, or to usher out um, Joyce as he turns up drunkenly uh, to a rehearsal uh, for, the, for the National Theatre Society, an early forerunner um, of the Abbey. He attended many performances here of, of Singh's Playboy of the Western World, of Lady Gregory's uh, the, the Rising of the Moon. It's worth saying as well that since the, uh, the copyright um, laws have, have changed since 2011, there's now a, a kind of wealth of, of Joyce uh, adaptations and, and variations for the stage. I'm sure Dermot and, and Ferdy will, will touch on those. But in 2012, um, we had a staging of The Dead here, the story from Dubliners, in a version by Frank McGuinness. Um, a couple of years later then, Performance Corporation, incredible theatre company, gave that a, a, an operatic uh, musical treatment. In 2012 as well, Corn Exchange, uh, Dublin-based theatre company, Company gave uh, Dubliners a, a full-scale rendering at the Gaiety Theatre as part of the Dublin Theatre Festival.
people. Some people might have come across Owen Fuere's uh, incredible performance and adaptation of, of River Run, where she gives voice and staging to the, to the river uh, from Finnegan's Wake. Um, friends of mine went to see uh, a version of Ulysses in Berlin a couple of months ago um, in the Deutsches Theater. That was a four-hour version. Of course, Dermot's managed to do it in two, which I'm sure a lot of people are quite grateful for. Um, and Dermot did that. They, they have much better bladders in Germany. <laughs> So Dermot did that in 2017, um, and now it's back with us for 2018. Um, I'm sure you, you, you know the guys that are about to take off here now, but just to, to introduce Dermot as, as poet, as playwright, as novelist, as kind of Dublin documentarian, publisher, editor, any number of things, plays particularly about Dublin, his Dublin Quartet from the early 90s, more recently his, his Ballymun trilogy, and I suppose a, a long-standing link with the Abbey as well, a, a previous playwright in, in association here. And Ferdia as, as, as novelist of fiction, of, of memoirs for, for theatre as well, um, screenwriter, director for film and for TV, uh, singer and songwriter, uh, Rocky De Valera um, and the Gravediggers and, and, and the Rhythm Kings. Um, and of course Ferdia's father, Tomas, uh, who's a former director and previous artistic director of the Abbey here and his stagings of, of Ulysses in Nighttown here in the 70s um, and right up until 1990, 1990. Um, 1990 mm -hmm. as well. Um, so thank you both for spending the first uh, chapter of your, of your Bloomsday here with us at the Abbey this morning. I'll pass over to you guys if you want to. Thank you, James. <laughs> Happy Bloomsday. <laughs> I knew it would work actually because when they advertised the event, nobody bought tickets. And then uh, I just put out a tweet and said, Ferdy McKenna is buying a round at half ten this morning in Dublin. And it's amazing how powerful that effect is, you know? Everyone gets a free glass of water. <laughs> Everyone. Um, what possessed you to take this on? Um, it, I mean, there's the book. Yes, yes, yes. There's the book. There's the, there's the name James Joyce that every writer grows up in Dublin. Well, I, I, I took it on when it was, there's all these wonderful adaptations of Ulysses happening now. And there's that great phrase that Irish politicians loved of doing something when it was neither popular nor profitable. Uh, I did this when it was neither popular nor profitable because I, I did it uh, initially in 1990. Um, uh, Ray Houghton put the ball in, in the Italian net in a giant stadium and I was in Philadelphia the night before that and it was, it was weird because um, I remember like leaving America to come home to watch the World Cup in America because the Americans had no interest in, 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 in the World Cup and a, a director called uh, Greg Doran who now runs the Royal Shakespeare Company had got Derek Walcott to do the Odyssey and then he actually um, wanted to do a version of Ulysses and Ulysses had gone out of copyright because the law used to be 50 years from the death of the author or date of first publication. And so Ulysses was, and the, actually, ironically, Gary Hines in the Abbey were, was, was sort of encouraging him and, and talking to him about it. And so uh, I met him, he flew, uh, he phoned me up and I said, no, because anybody in their right mind would say no. You know, it's a stupid idea to do, you know? And um, then he said, well, can I fly over and talk to you? And I said, you can fly over, I mean, you can have a talk, but, but I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not doing it. And then we had, we had lunch in the, um, What's the chapter one restaurant? You know, and there was a bottle of wine involved, and I was explaining to him why I wasn't going to do it. I mean, so you got and, to Langard and you agreed. Well, he sort of. Yeah, what happened really was that they, they, they have very big napkins in <laughs> in the uh, in in chapter one, which is really a dangerous place for anybody. You know, and so I began to say that you, there's no way that you could do you. And for, for one of the various reasons was that um, Molly Sildegrave, which is a magnificent piece of writing, overburdens it theatrically because it is playing itself. So so how would you even even tackle that? And, and I, was, I was saying like the only way that you could possibly do this would be to have Molly's soliloquy being in real time, to have the play happening and to have Leopold Bloom in bed beside her dreaming back his day. 
And therefore, Molly's uh, woods could punctuate his day and he could be led back by the phantoms of his imagination through the essential moments of his day and relive those days and they would have the fragmentation uh, and ease of a dream and been able to move from one moment to another moment that 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 that, that, that this floatingness in it that we able to just simply move around in time while molly was perpetually on the stage and that i wasn't doing it but if i was doing it this is how i would do it <laughs> and then I just seem to have signed a contract to do it. Um, <laughs> somewhere between dessert and leaving the restaurant, and so he took off for London. So you commissioned yourself. I was, to do it. I was sort of standing outside uh, in the Irish restaurant, saying, "Oh Jesus!" Uh, and uh, so that was many. That, that was many years ago. And when did you like? What? Did, how did you tackle it? What was? The, what, what did you do first? Uh, I. Um, uh, I think it, it really is the, the the first thing is to find out which saint to pray to. Um, no, I think what actually, I, in some ways it's daunting, but as a writer you should always take on the things that are daunting, because they're the things that are really, really challenging. And Dublin is, uh, you know, Joyce made Dublin his unique city, but, but at the same time it's not, every city is a new, you know, nobody owns a city, nobody has the copyright of a city. And uh, I, but, you know, everywhere you went as a child, Joyce was... Uh, Joyce was sort of there before you. My, my, my house in Duncondra, where I still live, um, where, where I wrote this adaptation, initially backed onto the garden of the house where James Joyce lived. Uh, one of the many houses he lived, a house he very, very, very vividly describes in Portrait of the Artist as a young man. And um, my, my own neighbour used to be a guy called Chris Kelly. Uh, and Chris Kelly was an old printer. And in the shed that adjoined my back garden, in the, which the shed in the garden of James Joyce's house, he had printed the first ever edition of Bungalow Bliss. And so the, the two most important books in Irish culture, Ulysses and Bungalow Bliss, had come together in this one house. And uh, occasionally, Chris wouldn't allow any plaques, but occasionally American academics would turn up and he'd go out and he'd break up a few packing cases and he'd bring them out and say, these are floorboards from the bedroom where Joyce slept and they'd go off. That's the thing, he dominated the city. Very, very happily. But, he was always there. but at the same time, that house was very interesting because it was, it was Joyce's house but the, the Lawler family, who were great League of Ireland footballers and played for Bohemian, uh, played for Duncanda and played for Ireland. And so old, some, some people call it Joyce's house, some people call it Lawler's house, and the people call it Kelly's house. And it was a change, like Joyce's city changed, like, like Dublin changed. And some ways, for me, just a long answer, but for me, going back to Ulysses was a way of, of making it my own, mm. of making that world of 1904 my own, in terms of, not, not, not only, but in terms of understanding it, of actually going in and finding, to my great shock, how much of it was contemporary, how much of these characters I understood, how much of them I recognised, how that sort of humour was still there, how that prejudice was still there, how that slightness was still there, and how that humanity was, was still there. And so uh, from starting out to write a period piece, I began to write quite a contemporary play. In, in, in my, because, because obviously I was taking the, the 2 or 3% of Ulysses that really fascinated me, the, the strong emotional heart of it. And, uh, but, so I did that in 1990, and then I, I, I would revive it again every like seven or eight years. It's like the sort of 
mullet duration of the time that I have haircuts. And, um, <laughs> uh, and, and each time I'd come to a different understanding of Leopold Bloom, because I was only around like 22 when I did the first, and he was like, uh, he was a few years older, and, 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 and then sort of he was my contemporary, and, and then so, and now I'm, I'm envious. Yeah, and obviously, when I read it first, I was 14, and he was this old geezer. Uh, and now I'm envious of his relative youth and his great humanity. Uh, and so it, it's like a sort of, you know, when you approach certain types of whiskey, I'm going to, I'm going to let you talk a moment after, okay? Don't, 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 get, don't get excited, okay? Uh, but you, you, you approach them differently at different ages. Bloom is the heart of the book in another way. Mar Molly is one heart. Bloom, there's, like, there's like two beating hearts in that book. Mm -hmm. And Bloom has that humanity. And I was here last night. I don't know if anyone has seen the play. Um, but uh, I was here last night, and he is, I mean, he's wonderful, he's, he's ever-present, and their journeys are fantastic. But there was a different side of Bloom in 1990, when um, my dad directed Ulysses in Light 10 mm -hmm. here, on Bloomsday, when the World Cup was kicking off. Mm -hmm. And it just happened to be that Ray Houghton was scoring that goal <laughs> against England. And the audience, there was about 40 people in the audience, my sister was in the place, so this is how I know this story, about 40 people in the audience. And um, so at some point, you could hear backstage the match going on. <laughs> and, and, uh, and everyone was leaning forward, not to hear Molly's words or to hear what was happening. And at one point, in a great show of humanity, Leopold Bloom turned to the audience and said, we've won. <laughs> and that was, that was what happened. That's how we knew that Ray Houghton had beaten England. So I think there's, there's, it's funny how well, everything seeps in. And like last night, mm -hmm. I had that experience. Mm -hmm. I was watching um, your, your play, which is fantastic and energetic and lively, and those characters emerge brilliantly, and it is Joyce and it is you. But at one point I heard a familiar tune. The Boomtown Rats, I Don't Like Monday, is happening in the middle of Joyce. And the connection between the Bob Geldof and James Joyce became clear to me. It's his city too. So Geldof, Bulger, and the Boomtown Rats, all, it's an extraordinary, extraordinary moment. I was going to ask you about the music in Ulysses, because there's a picture of James Joyce playing a guitar, mm. D. Mm. He wrote songs, he played guitar, he started the first cinema in Dublin, he wrote Ulysses. He loved music, uh, and I, I, I had a piece in the Herald last night about the first um, Bloomsday, and it's great that this, that this event is celebrated. I, I, I never really understood Bloomsday until that time in 1990 when I was in Philadelphia. We did the thing, and the, the Rosenbach Museum have the original manuscript of Ulysses. And actually, it was really weird. I actually went, and I actually got... Um, um, uh, I, I got um, my photograph taken holding the actual first page stayed and it was, it was fascinating to watch, to hold the whole manuscript and see his eyesight deteriorate and it mm -hmm. becomes more and more spidery and everything else. And I said, this is something that I'll be able to show my children and my grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And then when I got the photograph sent to me, I realised I was wearing a T-shirt and the T-shirt had uh, a Jack Charlton um, hitting, hitting Eamon Dunphy in the shape of a fly with a fly swatter. And, and I realised that while I could possibly explain Ulysses to my grandchildren, I could never explain the T-shirt, so I've, I've never shown them, shown them the photograph. But um, what was the question you asked me, Freddie? Uh, music, I think. Music, oh, that's it, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, but the music, the, 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 uh, the first Bloomsday was rescued because obviously uh, Patrick Kavanagh and um, Brina Nolan and Flannel Bryan began to have a, a large row over climb, climbing the rock face to the terror and it was bad temper in the thing, and then they invited along Joyce's cousin, who was a dentist, who turned out to have a, a, a wonderful tenor voice, uh, like Joyce had, and who actually sang songs and suited them all. And, and the, the book is awash with music, yes. and I think that I've been incredibly well served in this production by the uh, musical director, mm. by the actors, and we've walked in, because obviously something like the Armored Hotel only makes sense if you see it as an opera. Mm. And so we actually staged the whole thing as, as an opera, and, and that's one of the ch challenges of uh, adapting Ulysses for the stage is that 
most plays, I mean, even like, Waiting for God, has, has a conformity of style. I mean, it's, a, it, 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 it's brilliant originality of style, it's, it, 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 it is mind-blowing, but it, it's consistent. Yeah. Whereas Ulysses is 18 episodes in totally different styles. And so it was a case of trying to find um, a style. So Oxen of the Sun, the bit that takes place in, in Hollow Street Hospital, we did it as like a, a radio play. And, 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 but but, but like, uh, the, the Almond Hotel became an opera. And so it is written. It was written in operatic form, and the mu music just liberates us. And so music was very important, and humor was very important. And I think that the starting point I took uh, back in 1990 was um, when I read that Molly, um, sorry, when I read that Nora uh, complain to James Joyce. Uh, Nora stuck, felt he should have stuck to singing actually, but he used to complain to uh, Joyce that he kept her awake at night laughing as he wrote the book. <laughs> And you realise that the book is incredibly funny. Yeah. And very often the humour of the book isn't necessarily in the, the obvious laugh lines. Yeah. It, it's sometimes in just the, subtle, the subtleness of it, often getting under the claustrophobic skin of that city he needs to get away from. And, I, and, and as I began to adapt it, I began to see why he would sit up uh, laughing at night. It's, it's very funny. The play is very funny, the book's very funny, but I think that people don't associate humour with Ulysses. Yeah. And also with... Uh, somebody once said to me, you'll say it's the saddest funny book in the world, or the funniest mm. sad book mm -hmm. in the world, yeah, which I think yeah. is kind of close to the truth. I actually think, uh, my, my only regret is that I, I didn't give the, um, the actors the titles that your father gave them, because I, I, looking back to the, to the program, and your, your father's busters inside in the green room, it's, it's fascinating to see. It's like seeing Ferdia with a berry. It, it's really <laughs> interesting to see. I wanted to bring it out, but health and safety wouldn't allow it. But like, uh, Maureen Iguania was, was hanging Harry, the Mersey Terror, and sort of, um, Philip O'Sullivan was uh, played the Hobgoblin, you know, and, and these, are, these, are, these are roles I should have invented, you know? You know, my dad was in the film of Ulysses, Joseph Strick yeah. did a film of Ulysses uh, years ago. Black and white, it was mm -hmm. kind of funny, except you could see TV aerials on the houses, it was kind of a cheap production, but it was very good, uh, uh, Joe Lynch was in it, mm -hmm. uh, um, uh, uh, Milo O'Shea mm -hmm. played Bloom, and at one point, uh, my dad told me that he'd been in a film, and we were, I was very young, and he said, uh, yeah, I got a royalty check today, and he showed me a royalty check for not pounds and not pence that he got from you to say, so it was really the, the first of the micro-budget films ever made in Ireland. <laughs> but I, was, I can always say that my dad was in Ulysses, and that's not bad, that's not mm -hmm. a bad thing to say. Um, I, I wondered a bit, too, about the speed of it last night. I mean, two hours, and you were saying 3% of the book or so. How, how, what did you leave out and what did you decide to come in? What, what, did you have a, how did you go about to selecting the things you wanted to do? Well, you, see, you put the book in the washing machine at, at, and you wash at a very, very high temperature. And it just shrinks naturally, you know, and you hang it on the line for, for a few years and it works through. What I wanted to cut through was the, I, I, I mean, the book is a masterpiece and he describes everything. But the thing is, but what a novelist has and what a playwright doesn't have is that... Um, expansiveness. Mm. I mean, Ulysses could not only be a play, it could be 50 plays. Mm. I mean, the, the erotic correspondence of, 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 um, of Marta, his, his clandestine, um, yeah, it's hard to associate eroticism and Dolphin's band, but Joyce does. And, uh, I mean, that could be a play in itself. I, I mean, uh, Josie Breen and her husband could be a play that's a tragedy of their lives. All these things could be, could, could be plays themselves. And, and with Ulysses in Nighttown, you, 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 you won't play that. I know that the actual, the Barney Kearns, but it could be a whole play in itself. So, so you, uh, 
a novel can have 50 subplots, and there's no, there are no minor characters in Ulysses. What's fascinating is that Joyce gives them all entire lives, and they all link in, and, and so it's this extraordinary graph of actual characters. A, a playwright can't do that. The first play I wrote was a play called um, The Lament for Arthur Cleary, and um, the director was a, a, a great director, as your, as your father was a great director. My director's name was David Bourne. And, but he, he spoke in theatrical language. I don't mean flamboyant language, but I spoke, he, he did the, the techniques of theatre, which, which I wasn't familiar with, you know. And uh, he was trying to talk to me about a particular speech in that, clearly. And um, so I, I decided, as, 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 a, as a sort of thing, a shortcut, he was quite small, so I picked him up and I held him against the wall. And I said, Davis, you have four seconds to explain what the feck you're talking about. I'm going to drop you. This is a very, very good way to get to the heart of things, I find, with, with, with theatre directors. And he said, put me down, put me down. And he said, this, this speech, there was a speech in the, in, in the, um, on the page, and he said, this speech is one of the most beautifully written speeches I've ever seen in any play in my life. It's, every word of it is absolutely beautiful, and it rings so true, and it's really, really, really good. I said, yeah. And he said, this bit here, and he pointed to the end of the, the full stop at the end of the third sentence. This is where the guy in the third row of the theatre begins to wonder if his Volvo is safely parked. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the best piece of theatre criticism that I ever understood. And I have been to plays in, in the Abbey Theatre when there's this extraordinary moment when, 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 when the playwright has them in the palm of their hand and then tries to get them in the palm of their hand again. Mm. And, uh, and you can actually see this, this like a wave to the theatre and it's everybody checking that they have the ticket for the Irish Life car park in their pocket, <laughs> you know? And, and so you actually, with a, so with a play, speed is the essence. It, it, you're, you're in, if the audience get ahead of you, as a playwright, you're screwed. Mm. And so um, you actually have to um, perpetually cut to the emotional heart of the book. You have to find the bits that, are going to, that the audience are going to speculate on and enjoy and, and, and engage with. And so in some ways, you need to cut away so much of the book that is very, very brilliant writing, but it's not mm. the emotional core. So really, as a playwright, you have to come into the emotional core. And it's very hard to do that. And it's, it has, when I did it for... Uh, in 1990 for that one performance in Philadelphia, I was, it was like writing a play with one hand behind my back because um, I was trying to please the Joyce estate, not an easy thing to do, and please the, the, the demands of theatre. And so I, I was putting everything in and there were whole other scenes down and this thing, just trying to be faithful. Mm. And of course, you, you can't be faithful because you need to create a, you need to create a standalone walk. And so in some ways, uh, this play is on the Abbey stage is, the play, is a stage version of the play that I wrote uh, 20, 25 years ago. And it's very weird that's here because it, it, what happened with, to might know this particularly from, from abroad, the European Union are great people for, for standardising things, which is generally speaking a very good thing, but they standardised the laws of copyright. And so it went from 50 years from the death of the author, they took the German model of 70 years. And so people like uh, D.H. Lawrence, um, William Butler Yeats, James Joyce, many others, had gone out of copyright. And then the European Union made a ruling that they were going to go back into copyright, but didn't figure out how it would work. But it meant that the whole thing went into limbo. Mm. And so suddenly this, there was plans for this to come to the Abbey and the Donmar Warehouse in London and everything else. And I was meeting this person, that person. And then suddenly it just all died. Because basically, mm. uh, uh, you know, people, theatre costs a lot of money and uncertainty doesn't help theatre. So it just went into limbo. And nobody knew what would happen with all these books that had been in copyright and were going 
I've been out. I'm going back again. So on the morning of the day the law changed, I had a reading of my play in Dublin. It had been done in Philadelphia. And we did it at uh, 20 past nine in the morning in the Project Art Centre. I put it in the Irish Times, and, and the Irish Times kept phoning and saying, you do mean 9, 9.20 p.m.? And I said, no, no, a.m., because I figured that the Joyce Listers couldn't get down there in time to stop it. And we were trying to get two men and a dog. Now, two men we could get. The dog is really hard to work with animals. We just couldn't get a dog in there. And Fierk McNeil gave us the, the project. And um, uh, Michael West was, was young Stephen Dedalus, and sort of Alvin Ferrari was Molly. And we just read it. And it was a long table, and we read it, and I said, that is a wonderful, great, great moment. And it never happened, and that's fine, but I got to really understand the book, and I got to live with the book, and I got to get the essence of the book. And for me, as a reader, it was a great experience, and it will never, ever happen as, as a play, and that's great. And I forgot about it, and, uh, and I, I was doing little... Four little monologues set in Cabra, and and also I, I had loads of plays in the Peacock, uh, and I uh, I was walking by this theatre uh, maybe three years ago with my two sons, mm. and one of them said, "Dad, did you ever have a play in there?" And I said, "No, I had plays in the Gate, a couple plays in the Gate, four or five plays in the Peacock, a plays in the Project, and plays in plays in America, and plays in I mean, I plays all over the world, but never in the Abbey." And the other thing, when I was in the Peacock, I really wanted to have one in the Abbey, and it ne it didn't happen, and never will happen, and that's I'm totally serene with that. I've totally let that go, and uh, that's that's great. Uh, that's, that's not a problem, and it's not so. It's not so. It's not. It's not, it's not, it's not even a regret. It just didn't ever happen. And then I, I was doing these four little monologues for the Abbey uh, that were being performed by people from Cabra and Fingers uh, one afternoon, and I got called in to meet these new artistic directors. Uh, and they said to me, can we do your adaptation of Ulysses in the Dublin Theatre Festival next year? And I just broke my heart laughing, you know. Uh, and be because I, I walked out of the Abbey two minutes after I walked in, and I had like a four-week run in the Dublin Theatre Festival of one of my plays on the Abbey stage. Uh, and so it's, it's our thing, when you give up your dreams, your dreams sort of come true, you know. Yeah. Except, of course, when I got there, uh, the feckers had taken the stage out. Uh, you know, so 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 having I was dreamed of having a play on the Abbey stage. There's, there isn't there is no stage in the Abbey. <laughs> I was going to ask you about one of the most unique things about your adaptation: the puppets. Yeah, filling out the audience, filling out the population of Dublin at the time. Extraordinary moments of the puppets, especially. I mean, I'm thinking of Ru uh, uh, Leopold and Molly's yeah. son, and I'm also thinking the mother figure. Yeah, but but the citizen. Yeah, I mean, the citizen didn't need anyone with his hand up its back. The citizen could walk out on its own. Yeah, extraordinary looking thing. But where did that come from? Well, that came from the director from from, from Graham, who who and I mean, the thing is that it, what's the thing about being a novelist is that you're sitting on, on your own in some room somewhere, or being a poet, or being anything else. But theatre is an, uh, is a col collaborative act, and so uh, as that's why I. I only do plays every few years, but there's a great sense of walking with the thing. And like the cast have brought so much to this play, and they inhabit these characters so well. And obviously, Bloom inhabits Bloom, but like the others are inhabiting like 12, 15, 20 characters are moving around. But the actual, the overall vision belongs to the uh, director, and, and uh, he brought in a puppet maker who made these puppets from scratch for, for, from his imagination. And, they, and they, because there was a, a very good production of the display done by the Tron Theatre in Glasgow maybe five years ago, 
and they actually brought it to China, which was really interesting. There's a, there's a BBC documentary about the, the Ulysses going to China, and it's primarily that the main subplot is uh, a frantic search by the Irish cast for Bobby's tea bags in China, because it was the one thing that everybody forgot to pack. But, uh, the, but that, that, that play, there's so many, the characters are playing so many things, it can be hard to know who's who, mm. although they do it brilliantly. But uh, by bringing in puppets, um, and, and the, the, I was very suspicious of the puppets at first. Uh, you know, not suspicious, mm. but not sure how they work. But then in the first day of rehearsals, they just brought in um, the, these puppets. And, and it was fascinating to watch actors at work because they'd never worked puppets and none of the actors before. Mm. And they were, next thing they were putting these puppets on their knee, they weren't the exact same puppets as we had here. And suddenly they were, they were all gathered around the pub, they were having a conversation, they were abusing each other. There was, there was language being spoken that, but that wasn't in Joyce or Bulger. And, that much. And, and, and it was just to see, it was fascinating to see how actors are perpetually trying to learn new things and, and new skills and embrace things so readily. And so really, that, that a lot of the details of the production come from a wonderful uh, crew uh, uh, and cast and backstage people who actually sort of, I mean, like, the, the music is unique to this production, it has been written especially by, by John, who sits there quietly at the piano and slips off stage before he uh, can ever be part of any ovation. Uh, uh, the, the Graham made the, made the puppets, and, and these are, these are the, you, you're working with really special people. And uh, the whole thing also of having puppets, the whole thing also even taking out the stage was that there's such a sense of intimidation, fear around this book. And you go and you read so many disputes and bitter disputes about interpretations of Ulysses and everything else. And it is sort of, it's like you're stepping into a war zone. Uh, uh, and um, I wanted to take away the intimidation from it. I wanted to, I mean, what I've done is a very stripped down, very, very simple version of Ulysses that just tries to go to the emotional heart of it. Uh, and also present Ulysses as, I mean, I, I do believe that the revolution must come under June Stallman's plan. And most good things in, in, in Ireland do come under June Stallman's plan. They come slowly, they come incrementally. And Bloom strikes me as a different type of patriot than the patriot of the citizen in the bar. He strikes me as the guy who starts credit unions, as the guy who starts with those simple things that actually do have a civic function in society but to, to make all that happen you need to work with, with so many people uh, and, and it's amazing to also have the words on the page and then go into rehearsals and week in week out see a play grow and change The other, the other thing I was going to say to you about it is that the puppets are fantastic but the bodiness, the eroticism the sexuality, the sensuality the movement, the pace of it the extraordinary feel for the language and also the, the, the connections between the people there were some of the funniest lines, you know, that came, it came out of nowhere. Stuff that I hadn't noticed in the book came up uh, in, in the scenes. And I'm thinking about, you know, what the, the, the Ulysses Night Town scene mm -hmm. in particular. Um, wh where, where did you, where did you, where did you, what did you feel about Joyce's approach to, say, particularly the relationship between Molly and, and Le Leopold? I, I, I think I came to understand it more and more as I got older and older. Uh, and, you know, no relationship is ever bl black and white. And uh, that there is this, this, this great linkage between them, and the linkage is the loss of the son that they never read, that they never really speak about, but but who actually haunts both their days and, and haunts um, yeah, like lines in the play that years later you you realise Molly's referring to her son, yeah. you know, but but you, you you didn't get the first amount, and so I I think it is I I, I think it's a very very sophisticated, I don't mean the, the, the play, I mean, but in the book is a very, very sophisticated examination of, of a marriage and a marriage of equals. 
and, and Joyce gets inside the head of his female characters as much as his male characters. And, and, that, and, for, and for the time, it must have been so incredibly shocking. Uh, I, and the thing with Joyce is that he is, I met a senior Dublin politician whose name I won't um, mention, who was criticising Roddy Doyle to me around 10 years ago. And um, I don't know why he was criticising Roddy Doyle. I, I, Roddy's a friend of mine, and, and I, I have a huge admiration for Roddy's work. You know, he was saying, a filthy bugger, a filthy bugger, he was saying. And, uh, you know, you just put pornography, it's all he's writing. And um, so I began to recite all these lines from Roddy Doyle to him, uh, uh, and to prove his point. And he was nodding more and more and getting more animated. And then eventually, after around six, seven minutes, I said, but everything I've quoted to you is from uh, Ulysses by James Joyce. <laughs> and and, and so, so it is that sort of... Uh, uh, it must have been so extraordinarily shocking to, for that book to have been, for someone to read that book at that time. And, I mean, I mean if you think of how shocking the Late Late Show was to an Irish audience, because uh, Gaybourne held up a mirror to Irish people in the 60s. Irish people saw themselves and ran off screaming. You, can, you just, can you just imagine uh, how, how this book, uh, how people reacted to this book in 1922? It's like a student asked me recently to, to, to tell him or just recommend a book that would shock him. Mm -hmm. uh, because they were, they'd seen everything, they'd heard everything. So you, when you think back on people like John McGarren getting banned, yeah. Roddy Doyle's controversy with Roddy Doyle's books, mm -hmm. jo Joyce's Ulysses and the controversy that happened in them, the court cases, and, and then you see what happened last night on the stage here and what's going to happen very shortly in the, in the premiere, in the, in the matinee. You know, how was it so shocking? Around sex, around relationships between men and women, around saying the unsayable? Around the fact that we're human. I think that, 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 that what shines uh, out of Ulysses for me, the more I read it, isn't um, blasphemy or isn't sort of um, eroticism or isn't sort of um, obscenity. Or isn't, it's humanity. It's just basically that is who we are, warts and all. And uh, people, people are not keen to see their own warts. Two of the things I got out of last night was uh, forgiveness mm -hmm. and love. Two things that sometimes aren't associated with Ulysses or Joyce or a lot of Irish writing uh, because people regard it, you know, when, when you think about Ulysses, when you look at the controversy on it, humour, laughter, sexuality are interpreted in different times. Mm -hmm. the, the, the church hated many of the things. I, the church is kind of non-present. In, 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 can it ban any, can any book be banned? Can any Irish writer ever suffer the same um, controversy as, say, a James Joyce or, you know? Can anybody... Will you get banned? Uh, what do you have to do to get banned? Don't know. I've been trying for years. Uh, it, it, it's, it's, I, I think I, I fail. I failed the entrance exam. You know. <laughs> I remember Emma Donoghue once got denounced from the altar, but we didn't quite believe her. You know. You kind of need it, don't you? You need a good denouncement every now and then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, 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 but that said, I mean, there are things Joyce says now that he will get into incredible trouble for saying, but not from the church, but, but from other people. So, I mean, every, the, every society has its own form of self-policing that goes on, you know? What, what was the thing that pleased you most about when the play finally came, the first time you saw it on stage here at the Abbey? What was the thing that you noticed about it? Uh, I felt that the... What, not, what, what, what pleased me most was um, the number of people in the bar, people don't recognise me, um, generally speaking, and we come out and we're to over and, and they're saying, geez, I'm going to go back and tackle the book. Yeah. Because, you, 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 you know, I am, I am, I am a very, very um, bald John the Baptist. 
and uh, James Joyce is Jesus Christ. And so, you, you, know, you know, if I am paving the way in a very small way for, for people to go back. And I, I think that it's when I used to bring my kids for journeys, on, I remember uh, the writer Peter Cunningham had a big house in um, uh, Mead, and we used to go out and cut down our own Christmas tree and, and put it in the boot of the camp and, and, and bring it back. And the journey out seemed such an incredible long journey because they didn't know where they were going. And then they always commented upon the journey, the journey home to a home was so much quicker because they actually had a sense of where they were going. And so I think that what I want to do with this adaptation is to give a skeleton of Ulysses, is to give a sense of this is the emotional journey, this is what it's the... And, and, and other people will say, oh, my, my favourite bits are all gone and all, and all those things, and, and so much of the book is left out, and so much of the book I'd love to leave out. And, and I stopped reading Ulysses because I realised that, you know, I, I, I kept finding bits that I, that I want to put back in. I'm saying, Graham, you couldn't just slip that back in, you know? And then he'd, he'd produce a gun and say, leave the room. <laughs> and uh, so, but my, my, the bit where people say, I'm now going to go back and read the book. Because in some ways, this is about stripping away the mystique around the book and making it a Ulysses for, for, for everyone. I, I know, I think the Abbey have some special offer on uh, if you buy tickets during this weekend that you get tickets for, for the rest of the run for a, a much reduced price and everything else. So they're trying to encourage people. And so it's people who actually said, I was afraid of the book. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I enjoyed the actual adaptation. I'm, I'm going to go back. I'm going to try the book again. Good, that's great. Um, one of the things I was going to ask you about as well is Dublin. I mean, we mm-hmm. talked about love, and you mentioned your own Dublin. There's, a, there's some of your own Dublin in the, in, in the, in the adapta- adaptation, like um, you know some of the some of the approaches, some of the looks, some of the visuals. What, what is Dublin these days? Are people often say to me, it's changing so fast? It used to be a certain thing in the 80s. It used to be a certain thing in the 20s. In Joyce's day, it was a thing. There's, it's still recognisable from what was on stage last night. It's still recognisable from the book. But in terms of how did you bond with Joyce's vision of Dublin? How did it correspond to your own? I, I think that as a writer, I remember uh, doing a, a, going to the first ever James Joyce summer school that was run by Professor uh, Guston Martin, who was a wonderful man. And uh, he did a terrible thing to me because he actually said that there's, there's, in the, there's a line in the... In the the, the one, the haughty women, uh, spies Bloom looking at her from the polo match, uh, All Ireland versus the rest of Ireland. Uh, and uh, he actually had, uh, in the James Joyce Summer School, he, he would have Ireland versus the rest of the world, a soccer match, uh, which I actually sort of, uh, I, I played in twice. And I was, then I realised that the, in the first minute that All Ireland meant, there were no other people there, they meant Irish, Irish Americans... Irish Canadians, uh, Irish Australians, who now, uh, versus all the Spanish and uh, Portuguese. I remember like uh, running up and down the line, and being from being the worst person on any soccer team ever, being the best player on this team, being beaten in forty-four nil, and a Gus, Gus Martin lying on the grass bank uh, in uh, the Ivy Gardens, breaking his heart, laughing uh, and, and calling me. And, and the students being shocked by the level of uh, vitriolic abuse being hurled between myself and Gus Martin as this match <laughs> progressed. But I remember the, my speech was called, was called "Shift Your Shadow or Boast You," and it was both almost as if you were expected to pay homage to Dub to to Joyce as a writer. Mm. And growing up, I think there was a generation. I met a generation in places like Grogan's Pub who I felt were destroyed by Ulysses mm. in that they felt they had to write the masterpiece and they were all writing on these books they'd spent 20 years working on that, that had to be better than Ulysses, which is supposed to be possibility. And I think that as a writer, I tried to step back, I step, tried to step away from Joyce an awful lot as a young writer because I, in some ways it seemed that the world he was writing about wasn't my world. 
and yet it actually was. Uh, but but it, it, it wasn't the world of Fingness and dual carriage race and everything else. But the people were very similar when I got to know. But also there was a whole sense of that you were living in this shadow. And I think any young writer, like any young plant, is trying to hack their way to light and light and space and air. And so there was a sense of, of uh, trying, to, try, trying to forget that literary legacy and not be swamped by it and not have these ghosts on your shoulder. Uh, and then I think having created my own sort of space, my own sort of novels, it was a time to go back and look at Joyce and, and realise how uh, that, you know, the characters I grew up with, the characters my father drank with, weren't the characters in, in Ulysses, but they were very definitely the great-grandsons of the characters in Ulysses. Uh, I've, uh, I agree. I had the same experience. When I read Ulysses first, I went to UCD. I loved books before I studied English in UCD. And, and studying English in UCD put me off books. It made me feel they were, I don't know, uh, a science project or something that you put in the fridge and took mm -hmm. out every now and then to see how it was developing. Mm -hmm. um, so I, when my first experience with Ulysses was an academic one. And mm -hmm. didn't, I didn't engage with it as people. I didn't, mm -hmm. like, my, my image of Dublin was Mad Mary on the street singing yeah. outside the and Olivia statue and all those kind of things and seeing odd characters appearing. And as somebody once said about Dublin, it's a city where you see your mistakes walking down the streets uh, mm -hmm. in Georgia after, mm -hmm. the morning after. <laughs> so uh, I, I, I found that community missing in the study of Irish mm -hmm. literature in the yeah. city. I'm not blaming them, they were going about it their own way. So I found Ulysses myself mm -hmm. years later by accident. But when I read it the first time, I can remember only reading about half of it and stopping, or yeah. skipping the hard bits, yeah. or getting to the dirty bits first, yeah. um, and then getting the guide. Then I got Richard Elman's guide, read yeah. that. Yeah. So you can go back to it more and more. I think you can. It's, it's the book you, yeah, that you can. Uh, Philip Casey was a wonderful poet who died just a few months ago and was a great, great friend of mine. And he actually got um, he, 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 he got kicked. He, he lived on a farm in Wexford and got kicked by an animal and had to go to bed for seven months when he was 14. And his mother went in to Gorey to a second-hand bookshop to buy buy any book and the cheapest book there was Ulysses and he read Ulysses at the age of 14 and he reread it all of his life and Philip had his leg amputated um, years later in the 1980s in the Matter Hospital mm. and I went in to see him like several days later and he was a bit freaked out and I said what's yeah, okay Philip and he said I was sitting here reading Ulysses and I was really enjoying Ulysses and it was a particular page that I really love and when I went to turn the page I realised there was no book there. I mean, he was so high on morphine that he had actually he was hallucinating Ulysses. But like the book was so buried in his mind that he was actually he, he was actually reading it literally word for word, even though it physically wasn't there. And and it's, and, and sometimes it's it's one of the few books in the world that you take with you on a journey throughout your life. And you can because it has such a vast range of characters, n uh, almost none of whom appear on, uh, appear on the stage. Uh, you can actually dip into it again and again and again, and you come to understand it differently because you even when you look at your own family life, you understand your family life differently at 11 and 21 and 31 and 41 and you understand why people did things and all those things and so you actually sort of come to a different, as you mature, uh, you, your appreciation, your understanding of Bloom and of Molly and all those characters mature and also you begin to understand the, the love that is at the heart of their marriage, of their very fractured, their very, very dysfunctional uh, and their very close marriage. Well, I wanted to say to you, congratulations um, on last night because it's extraordinary uh, what you've done with it. There's a great love in that, in, in the adaptation, the mm -hmm. puppets, the music, mm -hmm. yeah. the bawdiness, the life, the characters. When you, when you finished it, you said to me once that when you finish writing, you forget the book. You, you finish your book, you're not, you know it's over when you just, it goes out of your head. When did you know you had finished adapting Ulysses? 
Oh, uh, well, Picasso was once asked when was a painting finished, and he said when the gentleman from the gallery comes to hang it. And uh, as, a, as a playwright, you find that the play is only really finished when the gentlemen and ladies from the press come to hang the playwright. <laughs> and uh, so uh, one is still tamping with it. One is, one, one is still... One, one is still uh, Frank O'Connor, whenever he was asked to vote of short stories, uh, would always sit down and retype the short story and make it new again. And so I think that's sort of where, where's, where's a novel is finished. Remember like the, uh, an American edition of The Journey Home coming out, a novel I wrote when I was quite young, about a very different Dublin, about a, a Dublin of the 80s and political corruption and sort of all that sort of... And I realised that, that I couldn't change a word of it. Uh, for the, even though some of it was terrible, you know, but, but, but because it was an angry young man's book, and I said like, I can't tamper with that. But with a play, you're always just looking at things, and, and you're always because it's uh, with a novel, you have a sense from reading a page how people. But the other part of the, the theatrical experience is the audience, and the audience react to things, and, and only when uh, an audience come into a theatre that the phantoms of any playwright's imagination come to life and suddenly they take on a whole new life and the actual, uh, the, the, the cast reacts. And it's amazing the tensions in a cast. That if there's a laugh line early on and if that laugh line isn't got, mm. attention creeps in. The, 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 not in this play, but in other plays, uh, I've seen like the, the, an, 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 a cast get nervous and that tension transmits itself to the audience and, and, and that whole interaction. So basically, as you see, the more you see a play done, you, you, you more, the, the more you see, oh, that bit could go, or that bit could go, or that bit be expanded. So there's always, I, I, I think that with every production of a play like this, there will be changes made. Okay, good. I was going to... Um, James was going to ask a question. James. Hello, yeah, James. We, we still forgot about you there, I'm sorry. I'm back on, I think, am I? Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll take this around, kind of roving in, in, in a couple of minutes if people want to, to put forward um, questions or curiosities or arguments, maybe. Is there anything that you said? Um, I'll, I'll be selfish for a moment and, and throw one or two um, your way myself. Um, that, that, that you mentioned there, Dermot, about this kind of um, the scary figure, the kind of Jesus Christ-like figure that, that Joyce is, kind of growing up in the, in the shadow of that as a writer. Um, myself and Verdi were, were chatting beforehand about a, a, an essay of Verdi's from 1991, um, Dublin Renaissance, um, where you talk about this and, and call out this particularly. Um, to quote you, you say, I was scared of the Jesus, how you kind of grown up as a, as a Dublin writer in the 60s, 70s or 80s with, with Joyce there as this towering figure. Um, and as Stephen says in, in, in Ulysses, that history is... Uh, is, is, is this thing that, that Ireland, this nightmare that Ireland is trying to wake up from. Um, you propose perhaps that Ulysses is, is the nightmare that Dublin uh, is, is, is trying to wake up from. I'm just curious, Freddie, if, or, and Dermot, both of you can kind of give a little more on, on that sense of kind of growing up in the, in the shadow of this towering monumental figure and how perhaps that does um, scare the bejesus out and how you, how you even begin to, to negotiate that. It was like being afraid of somebody you never met. You know, like Heart of Darkness, going to meet uh, Curtis at the end. You, you meet him at the very end. The book kind of appeared before anyone had read it, almost. I didn't know anyone who'd read it. I knew everyone who knew about Joyce. So, so it loomed. And then when you did read it, you read it in it. Well, my experience was probably different there, but I read it in an academic setting. So it kind of seemed like it was some kind of a project rather than something natural. So I got my poetry from Phil Linnett at that time. I got my, my music from the, the streets. I got, from, I, got a, I got a feel for anything that wasn't an authority-recommended book. 
And the biggest shock to me was that authorities would recommend a book like Ulysses. I always thought that it was a punk book. It went against everything that was there. It kind of challenged. And it was only when I got to know it later, I realized that it wasn't any kind of a nightmare. It was something wonderful and beautiful to be embraced, which was shown in the ad adaptation. So it did happen. When I wrote that essay, I was trying very hard to say, isn't it amazing that people are reinventing Dublin? Isn't it amazing that Dermot Budge and Roddy Doyle and Paul and Meehan are writing about Dublin and seeing it in a different way? Isn't it incredible the music that's in the language? Isn't it, aren't those characters real and vivid? Isn't this our experience? And I mentioned Goodbye to the Hill as well as being a formative influence. This was something I recognized. This was an experience that was, that was true. And so I kept looking for that in, in books and, 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 and in, in poetry. And it was only when Raven Arts started publishing and, and other voices started appearing that I actually recognized and I thought this was my, my scientism. So when I wrote that essay, I thought I was doing a good thing. And then next minute, bang, no academic would speak to me. I noticed something that was happening. Perhaps I didn't approach it the way that one should have. But I was enthusiastic about this. I love these visions of the city. It meant everything to me. And I, I like it. it's to, to the chance of walking around Dublin, it's just not like any other experience I've had in my life. You don't know what you're going to see. You know you're going to meet someone you know. You know you're going to be seen. You know that there's going to be some kind of a story. Somebody's going to see and associate you with something you didn't do. You know, whatever it is, it's going to be interesting, engaging, ridiculous. And as somebody once said to me, why is Dublin so larger than life? You know, I used to say that about my mother as well. You know, my, my, my mother and my dad were huge influences. My, and they weren't from Dublin, they were from Dundalk and Roscommon but they meant everything about Dublin to me and they're in this building a lot. And I wrote a novel called Last of the Hikings and I portrayed my mother and I told everyone it wasn't my mum, but of course it was, and she recognized herself and wouldn't read the book. Um, and, and I said, uh, somebody said to me, your mum, why is she so understated in your book? He knew my mum. Everybody else who reviewed it said, the character is totally overstated. So I think Dublin is a bit like that until you get to know it. So that's what I was trying to get at. Dermot's book, The Journey Home, was the first great novel I ever read about the modern Dublin, the new Dublin that was changing from being pasty-faced and stuck in religious um, bigotry and all sorts of things. It, it, was, it was a novel, it was like punk, it was a novel that went from black and white into technicolor. It showed us something and it meant something and I think, I think it still resonates now today. And I had that feeling too about Ulysses. That's my, my, my feeling for that is that I love it in a different way every time I read it. And, and, and you say in that essay as well, Freddie, that, that, that what Joyce did is that he just, he just took the city in its entirety, kind of left none for anybody else. And then around, the same, us, yeah. Yeah, and then around <laughs> the same time as well, because um, then you added a collection, Invisible Cities. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so was that a, an attempt or a strategy on your end to kind of take those parts left over or create kind of new patches uh, of I suppose, I suppose the reaction to Joyce, I, suppose, I grew up in um, what felt like an invisible place. I grew up in, 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 in a modern... Uh, Dublin working class uh, suburb and it didn't seem to exist uh, in the school books we were taught, it didn't seem to exist there was a sense that the true island existed uh, in Connemara where there, was, where there were men knitting their own knickers and listening to um, and, get, and getting German television on satellite dishes on their thatched cottages and uh, there was uh, and that, you know, if you look at the, at the Spirit of the Nation, that massive book of speeches by Charles J. Hockey, the Aran Islands are mentioned like 11 times Dunicani, where he's from is mentioned once. And so there was a sense that there was this whole world that hadn't been written about, uh, a world uh, of the world of Fingless and Clondalkin and Cabra and so many other places that, that simply Joyce couldn't have written about because they didn't exist when Joyce was there. Uh, and so there was a world that, and when you were looking for 
a sense of ancestors for that world. You found it in um, the songs of Bruce Springsteen. Uh, I, I'm in the middle of, of writing an, an essay for some book in America for his 70th birthday, which is next year. I have to believe that Bruce is 70. Uh, and, uh, and you found it in things like the novels and, and the, um, the work of an Italian director like Pier Paolo Pasolini. And uh, Pasolini, uh, who made wrote a wonderful essay that um, I, I published in a book of essays. When we began Raven Arts Press, the Arts Council were very keen that we confine it to famous writers that we weren't meant to publish outside that sort of sphere. And we said, fuck that, we're going to publish anybody we want. And we published, uh, the, the, we published you know, Dublin Writers, we also published uh, the poetry of Paul Salan, that extraordinary uh, Jewish gym poet who survived Auschwitz, and we published uh, essays by Pasolini. And Pasolini had one essay, um, and he wrote about the palace, and he said the palace was that part of the city where the intellectuals live, where the intelligentsia live, where the newspaper editors live, where the gossip columnists live, and where life seems to happen. And everywhere outside that part doesn't exist. And when tragedies happen outside that palace, they don't get reported. And when a tragedy happens inside that palace, it becomes front page headlines. And so in some ways there was a sense that the Joyce's world was, although not as characters, was part of that palace, was a part of that central city where it actually happens. And so as a young writer, you, you're always rebelling against um, what, what seems the norm or what seems like the, what you're being told is great. And so it was this case of trying to create in Raven Arts Press and in my novels and in other writers of my time uh, and, and, and in punk bands, and there weren't that many cultural icons and things. There was nowadays, um, there was Seamus Ennis, the great Ilan Piper. Nowadays, there's Aslam, who are from Fingless. There's you two who want to be from Fingless. But there, but there was very, very little uh, when, when I was starting off. So there was a sense of, start, of every, every, gen, every, every generation of writers want to start with a blank sheet. And you need that sort of space to grow. And then you begin to see how your blank sheet is actually part of a larger tapestry. And so slowly then, as, as I began to write, I realised how Joyce was uh, an ally, how Joyce was also writing about these, these hidden, invisible walls and writing about them so well. Somebody said to me the other day about a, um, about a six-year-old um, who asked him this week who James Joyce was, um, lives out in Sandy Cove, aware of the Tower Bloomsday Festival, who's this guy, James Joyce? And the response was that he's, he's a writer. Um, and then the six-year-old um, asked, um, what, what does he write? How, how does, what, what does he write like? Um, and not wanting to discourage and say it was difficult or it was complicated or anything, kind of struggling for the word, struggling for the word. And then the six-year-old jumped in and said, Corley? Corley? That's the type of, of writing. And I thought it was, a, it was kind of a wonderful description in ways of, of, of Joyce's approach. In ways, this production here um, is, is fantastically Corley and has that Corleyness of, of, of Joyce's work. It's also beautifully accessible as well. Um, it's in the words, but I think it's also worth acknowledging in, in, in the staging as well. As you get to kind of sit and be immersed and kind of be given ownership again, you're, you're putting kind of everyday faces back into the, to the world of Ulysses. Um, can you say a little more there, maybe about um, that spirit, I suppose, of making it kind of accessible and digestible again? You said that. Well, um, I mean, in some ways, you'd need to have the director, uh, Graham, who's did an extraordinary job of this, uh, and you'd have to have the musical director and the puppet and the cast and the cast. But I think what's great about Ulysses is that, I mean, if, some, if somebody, if the book is sufficiently expansive that there could be 10 totally different plays made that would all be 
um, very, very faithful representations of Ulysses, but totally different. And I think that it, that, that it is, and, and it doesn't, I remember there was, you know, talking to Stephen James Joyce, the grandson, like uh, 25 years ago about this, and him saying that he would object to any adaptation that wasn't, uh, that didn't include all 265,000 words of it, which is, which, is, which is a very valid point of view, and I don't, I don't dispute that. But I, I think that the great thing with Ulysses, it is, it is a great masterpiece, and no matter what anybody does with it, will never change its status. And so, whether this is a good version or a good version, won't change the book. And 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 the book is in, the, the book is unbreakable. Uh, and and it is also great enough that people can come along and they can actually make these small attempts to actually get into the emotional heart of it. Uh, and I think that uh, there will be adaptations of this book being done for decades, maybe centuries to come. And as Verity said, it's that love and that humour and that emotional drama that's, that's at the core of it. Um, I'm happy to use my legs now for a few minutes and uh, run around with a kind of roving microphone if people want to um, offer up, as I said, some questions or curiosities or just comments themselves. Uh, can I ask a question of a member of the audience? Absolutely. Let's, okay. let's flip it uh, around. As Joyce has, uh, wrote Dublin's, uh, which was his, 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 his first book, and as we have uh, the only surviving member of the original line of the Dubliners here, could I ask John Sheen how the Dubliners got their name? Do you want to give him a microphone? I was just looking for a John like, there. Not, the not putting you on, on the spot, John, you know? <laughs> not to put you on the spot, John, but here's a microphone. <laughs> I'm used to being on the spot. <laughs> Light. Um, originally, the group was known as the Ronnie Drew Group. Uh, Ronnie was the best-known member, I suppose, and had done various uh, bits and pieces in the Gay Theatre with John Malloy. And uh, so originally the group was known as the Ronnie Drew Group. Uh, there was a beautiful misspelling one time in a newspaper, I think it was in Nace where we were appearing, and it said uh, the Ronnie Drew Ballet Group, <laughs> instead of Ballet Group, of course. But uh, <laughs> when we became a little better known, uh, internationally, um, there was an argument going on one night as to changing the name that would have uh, an international appeal. And Luke happened to be uh, reading James Joyce's Dubliners at the time. And uh, Barney didn't quite get the drift of the conversation, and he was suggesting it should be known as the Barney McKenna Group. <laughs> So Luke was getting a bit fed up with this, and he said, ah, for Jesus' sake, stop the shouting. He slammed the book down on the table. He said, call it the Dubliners. And that's how we got the name. 